1: Ladies and gentlemen, uh,
0: can I please have your attention? Daniel,
1: Jiggins! greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. No, you are not listening to this at one and a half speed. I'm in just that much of a hurry to get to today's guest. Um, he has been a uh, a steadfast. Uh, Sancho Panza of this podcast of late, and um, he has been the, you know my go-to substitute host, no offense to David French, um, but there are only so many Aquaman and critical race theory takes one can have in a summer. Um, and of course, I'm referring to my uh, AEI colleague, my dispatch colleague, Chris Starwalt, my audio doppelganger, according to some, but we're going to do something to fix that. Chris, welcome <laughs> back to The Remnant
0: how uh, it's of course always a pleasure to be here and i know that these count toward my overall i do do you feel that when i uh, sub for you does that count toward my total appearance number or is that on the wrong side of the net
1: um you know we're gonna have to go what's the um Is it the sports almanac i mean uh, uh, in what is the like in comic book it's the overstreet comic book guide what is the official keeper of sports statistics
0: well, you have, it depends on the baseball almanac for baseball, baseball though, almanac right? of course. Right. Or in this case, I think you'd need a Hoyle, you know, the, a, to tell us what exactly the rules of the game are, a, a, a universal decoder for, uh, disp- uh for remnants, uh, appearance status.
1: Yeah. And when we should be very clear, you said Hoyle with an H not Moyle with an M, <laughs> but that's a completely different conversation. Um, so, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about infrastructure because I feel like I've spent too much time talking about infrastructure and it's not, let's be honest. I mean, I welcome the boredom of the new post-Trump era in some ways, but it is kind of a boring topic after a while. I mean, it is just sort of Washington story kind of thing, but it looks like it's going to pass and uh, that is significant. And um, we have, I have friends on the right who insist this is the greatest debacle since the last one in that uh, this will um, pave the way for the human infrastructure thing to go through, which uh, I do not like and do not want to go through, but, and there are other people who say, no, 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 this is good because it kicks the can on the filibuster stuff and blah, 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 and bipartisanship stuff good. And at this point, I'm, I, I think I'm, I've just gone numb to it all. So why don't you uh, bring me back to life here and give me your sense of it all?
0: Well, uh, first on the question of the filibuster, I just mm-hmm. want to say they don't have the votes for it. Uh, they don't have the votes to change the filibuster when they have the votes. You, you remember Krauthammer's old line uh, about Middle East uh, peace process. He would say, wake me when peace breaks out. Um, <laughs> we, I hear about the filibuster all uh, for years. All we talk about is filibuster. They don't have the votes. And it's not just Joe Manchin who's denying them the votes that the, and Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. Hiding behind mansion and cinema, are other normal Democrats in the Senate who don't want to get rid of the filibuster, who know that this is bad, and they also don't like being—they uh, don't like being extorted. when they say, "Well, we need you to eliminate the filibuster so that we can stop minorities from having their uh, voting franchise stripped from them." And they don't like the tactics. They don't like the other stuff. I've talked to other uh, Democratic members of the Senate. I've talked to Democratic staffers who are unambiguous on the question that the filibuster should remain. They just don't want to have to talk about it. Um, The infrastructure package in Chuck Schumer probably would have been okay with, actually he would have been better than okay with with the bipartisan deal falling through. That's probably good for him. That would have been good for him because then they can lard up the other one the four trillion dollar one, the three or four trillion dollar one, even more, and you don't you you don't have to have
1: right. That would help the other one because it would put the hard infrastructure, which everybody wants, into that other one, right? Right, right.
0: and so that way you get mansion and cinema, you get the moderate Dems up in their numbers on the other one. You take the money from here, you put it over there, and you say, in a spirit of high minded regret, if only the Republicans had not thwarted uh, America's need for good roads and bridges. Uh, so we'll just have to do it over here. So this is it's put it. The the winners of this are members of the Senate who are trying to make an argument that the Senate can function and do stuff. Um, if this goes through, the losers bless are indeed hearts. bless their hearts. Susan Collins. Mwah. Uh, but <laughs> the the hard part is. So you can do this and for Biden, this would be a big this would be joe biden's biggest accomplishment to date that he got 10 republicans to back he got more than 10 republicans to back something in the senate uh it is a validator for his approach to governance um and it will it will make angry some on the far left um but this this is uh his the the, he's making his bones here on the base of what he said he was going to do what will the actual effects of a trillion dollars in new spending be um without any uh tax increases uh larry summers would tell you that it's going to make the inflation worse uh and that this spending glut will continue to have other problems but i just know that that in the short term this is uh this would be a huge win for biden and this this would say this would be a validator for his approach within his party
1: and does it make the human infrastructure thing less likely or more likely? Do you think they have the votes for 50 votes to, to, cram that thing through reconciliation?
0: They have 50 votes for something.
1: Fish tacos. They have, they have 50 votes for fish tacos. They, they, exactly. They, they have, they have
0: 50 votes for, uh, lightly, uh, fried tilapia. I, I think if you are if you're mansion, if you're cinema, if you're those guys, you go back to your conference and say, you know, we got this for you. Uh, now we'll give you this. We'll get. We're not going to give you five. Tr- you know the total is not going to be six trillion dollars. I can't believe we're talking about numbers in this volume. I can't believe that you have. We have a country that's uh, growing at the highest annualized GDP rate in our lifetimes, basically, or since '83, and <laughs> and we're talking about borrowing trillions of more dollars. Uh, it is. It is the the falling away of any kind of fiscal responsibility i thought there would be a snapback i think there will be a snapback on this stuff and there will be a price to pay for incumbents on spending especially if inflation continues to be uh, a problem and i know there I, I don't i'm not i'm not an economist and i don't know enough to know who to take seriously on this question but i know it's certainly a possibility and i do think that in 2022 there will be consequences uh, with voters on spending. I just don't know where that where that line is.
1: All right, so let's move on to um, one of your favorite topics: um, the ongoing effort to claim that our democracy is in peril um, and how to fix it and and fix a bunch of stuff that ain't broke and ignore a bunch of stuff that's getting broken. Um, have you read this Jane Mayer piece in the New Yorker? No. Yeah. I, I, I really, very rarely find myself asking that question. (laughs) I was going to say, say. (laughs) I started a little bit and I got last night and I got too annoyed. And then I heard her on morning Joe this morning, morning Joe. I I'm beginning to think that you, me, who would be a good third? Not pod. I mean, pod would be good, but just the talking. (laughs) <laughs> um but a mystery science theater podcast where we just oh, watch totally. morning joe together um and i i i say this with a perverse kind of love i mean i i watch the show because i actually i i get something out of it that i don't get from the other shows but i also sometimes some of the things i get are heartburn and so anyway uh i'll get to this you, other thing that
0: you i have to say this though you remind me of and an, uh our friend bill salmon was the same way he'd come in every day. He'd, you know what they said on Morning Joe today? And I said, you, "I said, boss, you remind me of the guy who's sitting at, uh, sitting at work and he looks in his lunchbox and he says, tuna salad again! Ah. <laughs> and his buddy says, well, why don't you tell your wife to stop packing tuna sandwiches for you? And he says, hey, I packed my own lunch.
1: <laughs> um, I saw the punchline coming uh, from, pretty, from pretty far away. Um, uh, the, all right, so they had Jane Mayer on and I gather the thesis of her piece is that, which I will read out of due diligence, I suppose. Um, just that I have 30 years of experience to lead me to the conclusion that I think she's one of the least honest major reporters out there and, um, some of it personal. Um, and, uh, um, but anyway, uh, she, you know, it's sort of like there are certain reporters who always go back to the same storyline, Um, this sort of weak tea dishwater Marxist theory, you know, um, the Thomas Nast cartoon theory of all politics. And she wants to make the case that fat cat corporations, um, that the rich are the ones really driving the behind the, the, the big lie and the stop the steal stuff. Um,
0: Well, I, 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 now you're going to make me read this piece and I resent you for that. Um, uh, But the idea that, and this is also uh, you hear it from the uh, the Lincoln Project, uh, the um, where they're running these ads that say these corporations supported the attack on democracy. You're like, well, no, they do- they donated money to the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Right. Right. Oh, okay. Uh, I I guess so. I, I guess so. There. Are, uh, if I give money to the uh, House Republican Campaign Committee or the National Republican Campaign Committee for the House, yes, that money uh, might go to uh, some of the money might help Marjorie Taylor Greene get reelected. It will also go to Liz Cheney. Uh, so the, the the I have noticed the effort to, and this was from the original reporting that was from us. Uh, citizens at crew citizens something against waste uh and citizens for responsibility and ethics in washington which is a left-wing watchdog group that did the original report that found this you know this was where toyota got caught out giving all this money to and they included the national committees for these parties and it's like so giving money to the republican party is now the same as uh being an insurrectionist copy
1: and so to listen to her summary this morning. Um, it's the same boogeyman she's been talking about for 30 years. It's Alec and,
0: um,
1: and, and look, I have my, I have, I have grave problems with the Bradley foundation these days. And, um, which is among the many reasons why, um, the Bradley prize will never be coming my way. But, um, uh, she starts she starts name dropping like Robbie George and Paul Clement, who are on the board of the Bradley Foundation as at least as guilt by association with other she doesn't name really rich people and that they're funding the Maricopa this or the whatever I don't know if she said that Bradley was funny, but you know this it's this whole sort of you know f ten macro big business supports all these kinds of things and the thing that bothers me about this one in particular is Again, plenty of criticism to go around on how lots of institutions on the right, she dings the Heritage Foundation and whatnot. But if you're still going to your playbook that says the GOP is run by dudes, that is run by cats, fat felines in tuxedos, smoking cigars in a Thomas Nast cartoon, then it's time to change up. I mean, the the Republican Party has never been more anti-corporate in, yes. And the right has never been more anti-corporate in our lifetimes. And corporations and it, have never been more anti-right in our lifetimes. Yeah. And it's just like, it's like, you know, put a, come up with a new theory of the case. You know, I'm not, I'm not defending the, these people for the Maricopa nonsense, but um, like there's something else going on in the culture than a bunch of, you know, CEOs sitting around, um, you know, trying to undo America through corporate badness or whatever
0: the but it, but it, if everything has to be a unified theory right if you have to fold it all back in if the first problem is money in politics so this is the old the old saw uh that it's the money in politics uh we have people who are talking in the for America or the for the people Act and other things uh, other campaign finance provisions that talk about the problems in it, or that approach the problems in American politics today as if the issue was, big money in politics, Toyota's $53,000 that they gave to people who voted to try to steal the election. Uh, that is nothing compared to what those folks can raise. Uh, JD Vance, uh, uh, who (laughs) has some ideas about natal policy for the United States, uh, told, told he he was giving the speech at the, what is it? The ISI or no intercollegiate. Yeah. ISI. ISI, okay. Uh, and he was giving the speech and he was talking about he talked to the federal a reporter from the Federalist afterwards. And he said, it's great. And he should not have said it out loud. I can go on Fox News and raise all of this money in small donations now. So it's fine. And because the I love the question from the Federalist was like, how can we be sure that you will stay with these policies when the when the uh, when the fat cat establishment comes to try to co-opt you? He said, well, I don't need them anymore because I can go on Fox News and raise a bunch of money anytime I want. (laughs) So the 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 joke that the problem in American political life today uh, are and this is always more attractive. We've seen all the Washington movies. We know the story that is the most attractive one. Shadowy moneyed interests. Are manipulating the system against the people. The people are manipulating the system against the people, right? We have a small dollar, thanks to low barriers to entry, and weak parties. Uh, the, the ability for small, the rage click contributions are a far bigger problem in American politics today for what the incentives that that creates for parties and, and officials. Uh, than, uh, Charles Koch, the Charles Koch, uh, uh folks dumping a billion dollars on somebody's head. Just, it's not even close.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, I agree with you, but the rage click stuff, and I want to get back to that in a second, but the, the, you know, this biz- business world gets a lot of scrutiny because a lot of the media has a Jane Mayer worldview and thinks that their job is to shine a light 'Cause on the evils of corporate America, because they all think they're freaking Upton Sinclair or something writing writing the jungle again. And um meanwhile, like I I gotta tell you, I am loving this moment. And like this is the one of the good things about today's Morning Joe is they rained, particularly Joe, rained holy heck fire on teachers' unions. And which is, you know the first time in my lifetime that we've seen anything like this, uh, you know, keeping, doing a poor job of teaching, you know, tens of millions of minority, p- poor minority kids over generations that won't earn you any ire, but refusing to get vaccinated, all of a sudden liberals are like, Oh, maybe they can be a problem. <laughs> and, um, uh, and just on this corporate fact, the you know, teachers unions, trial lawyers, they don't get nearly the scrutiny that the that the corporate fat cats get. And they have just as much, if not vastly more, uh, policy skewing influence than, than, you know, the Cokes or any of those guys do. Absolutely. Um, And,
0: and the companies, by the way, as you, as you alluded to briefly, the consequences, again, if you can be punished for your company's PAC, giving money to the national Republican senatorial committee, if you're, if, if, if that is now considered a, I mean, look—it's the grift on the grift, right? You got the Lincoln Project uh, that is grifting off of the gri- of Trump's grift. It's it is like you know it, James Jesus Angleton's wilderness of mirrors, uh, but it's a wilderness of grift, and it's like you know. I, I guess what I would say is, when partisans—and I guess I include Jane Mayer in this—when I hear from when I hear from partisans about what's wrong with the system and all of those things. I'm just, I, I don't care. Uh, and it's just, you know, I, I firmly believe that the biggest problems we have in America today are transpartisan. I just, I think that, yes, I, there's a lot of great debates to be had, uh, and our colleagues at AEI are having them about if we had a functional government, how, <laughs> what were the policies that we, what would be the correct things to do if we had a government that functioned? But the, but the biggest question for me seems to be, can we agree that it should function and how it should function? And are we going to use the American system or not? And I think that is a, a much bigger concern now than those policy settings that people like Jane Mayer are living in the past, thinking about like it's 1996.
1: So, um, on this click, hate donating stuff, words, no, come easy. Um, <laughs> So I wrote my LA Times column about this, in, um, and and readers of the G file will soon see the part I had to yank out. I suspect because I gotten all caught up in making a very long, extended Godzilla metaphor, and I realized that <laughs> three hundred words into a seven hundred and change column for the LA Times riffing on Godzilla was not appropriate, and I pulled it all out on a, partly on the advice of my wife. Uh, but we can we can we can revisit that here if you like. But, um, they wanted me to write about, is Trump losing his influence in the GOP? And one of the reasons why it was like pulling teeth to write it was that it was only after I extirpated the Godzilla thing that, um, I realized it's the wrong question because it seems to me, and you tell me what you think. It seems to me obvious that Trump has had a bad summer, um, can't sell his Bill O'Reilly roadshow tickets. Um, uh they're passing infrastructure without him and it making makes makes him sad they got the IRS is, has to hand over his tax returns um he endorsed someone in Texas who lost um I know it's a complicated story there you know but it's still that's the headline and you go down a long list bad summer seems to be a little bit out of it can't stop the infrastructure bill um on the other hand he's a fundraising juggernaut and if he so chose to he could um be the de facto nominee if he announced tomorrow. And so basically, no one knows what's going to happen with him. And you can talk it round or you can talk it square depending on events going forward. The real question for me is what about the damage that he has left behind? And this sort of comes out of a conversation I had with Dan McLaughlin last week, where Dan um, pointed out that because Dan, I, I, I like Dan McLaughlin a lot. He's a friend, former colleague. Um, But he has a different orientation to, like a lot of my friends at National Review, has a slightly different orientation to these fights on the right. I don't want to be pejorative because, again, some of these guys are among my closest friends. But basically, they don't want to have them. And there's a a breed of honest and, and sincere and decent and intellectually sound conservative that just wants to train fire leftward and thinks that the Trumpism stuff will burn itself out. And uh, in some cases, that's true. I don't spend a lot of time paying attention to Candace Owens or something like that. Um, I, you know, anyone who goes full Gorka basically disappears off my radar. But at the same time, Dan made this point that in 2016, Trump there was basically no nationalist Trumpist farm team for him to staff his administration with. And my point is is that yeah, Trump is weaker today than he was in 2016, but the GOP is infinitely more receptive to Donald Trump than it was in 2016. In 2016, the entire party, the entire establishment was arrayed against him. Now, the head of the RNC is uh, just a total lickspittle to Trump. Uh, vast sums of the sort of intellectual apparatus of the right are dedicated to defending, rationalizing, or paving the way for Trumpism of some kind. Michael Anton, for reasons that I, er, elude me, is not afraid about being hit by a lightning bolt when he says how America now needs a new American Caesar to write the country. He did not. He, he apparently did not. he did on this podcast that he had with some monarchist jackwad and oh, boy. you can go down a long list. The problems I have with the Bradley foundation is that they're much more comfortable with this stuff than I think that they should be and, and all the rest. And so you're left oh, with boy. a situation where there's a huge farm team. Now there's in fact a kind of opposition sports league um, system that has been built up around this and that stuff, the question I have is, how long a half-life does that stuff have?
0: Well, there, there. I think there's th- three groups to talk about here. So you have the uh, once, uh, always, and future uh, nationalists. The and this is I, I think of these as the Buchananite wing of the Republican Party. They have always been there. It's one in five Republicans or something like that over time. These are the people who. Uh, they and their parents and grandparents have always been there to try to blow up the establishment. Uh, it's usually cultural more than economic. Uh, and that's always there in the same way that there's always going to be a fairly equal number of kind of uh, free market, libertarian, no uh, Republican, uh, the uh, fiscally conservative, socially liberal set, so these are constituencies that are always going to be in the Republican party. The question is of about the other two groups that make up the Trump coalition. How many of the opportunists would just as happily switch back or switch up to something else? Right. Uh, I, I, I certainly believe that Rona, don't call her Romney McDaniel, uh, would certainly if, uh, Mike Pence won the Republican nomination in 2024, sound totally different. And you know what? That's how she sees her job. I, I wish that's not what political parties were anymore. I wish that party leaders had actual power. But I assume that for a whole lot of these folks who were opportunistically nationalist, uh, that they would happily if they'll do whatever's popular, And the reason that they went with Trump is because they thought Trump was popular. And if it turns out Trump's not popular, they will be something else and they don't care. There were a lot of people who bitterly uh, opposed Reagan in 76, 1980. Cool. No problem. Right. Those rifts vanished uh, in substantial part inside the Republican party. The question for Republicans is the younger generation and by younger in politics, we're talking about people basically under 50, Uh, the younger generation, that has been shaped by these conflicts and have advanced in local and state parties on the basis of uh, MAGA membrane measurement, right? So, uh, and if that is the definitional, so let's think about how we managed to survive 2020. We managed to survive 2020 because normal people like Doug Ducey in Arizona, uh, Republican leaders of the Republican legislature in Michigan and other places said, no, we're we're not stealing any elections. We're not gonna do that. Uh, their replacements in the future, in the next 10 years, will have been shaped by the experience and have a lot of them will have gotten where they are on the basis of beating normals with the power of MAGAism. So how many of those are there that this is their definitional thing? So just in the way that there are a lot of Republicans whose experiences were defined by the the, the 2000 election remade the Republican Party in a substantial, substantial way, and it brought in all these Texans and it did all of this other stuff. The question now is how big is, is that class of uh, younger Republicans who are going to be in, in office for a long time now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's a part of the problem. And this is something I, I will admit I am. I struggle to get my head around because, I mean, look, you spent most of your career looking at these grubby things called politicians, right? And um and I'm not saying that you didn't look at the eggheads. No, heads, no, no, no. But you know, that's, that's the mo- that's the bulk of what you did. And I, I and by the same ratio, I would say like I looked I paid a lot more attention to the eggheads and then looked at the politicians, right? And it's just sort of a different orientation kind of thing. It's not like I didn't pay attention to the politicians, but you know, I was my biggest passions were always about the conservative movement and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and so you're, I am, I was so shocked by so many people who had spent decades saying something along the lines of limited government, good free trade, good. Uh, maybe we have to get control over borders, but all in all immigration is a positive thing. Um, thinking that manners and character and all these things matter. And, so many of them, when the political climate changed, they changed their views, and some did it with subtlety. Some will claim that there is no inconsistency. We tend to call these people liars. Right. Um, but we have always uh, been at
0: war with East Asia.
1: Yeah, but like if you're, but like the fact that Bill Bennett and Roger Kimball and some of these people could do what they did left me so sort of breathless. Do you think, from where you're sitting, that like say? For the, just for the sake of argument, that a Ben Sass or a Paul Ryan should be the Republican nominee. Do you think that these guys just memory hole everything they said before, or claim there is no inconsistency with swip, switching to Trump? Because it seems to me, my 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 view is that once I change my my mind on something, once I publicly say I believe this and and not that anymore, I feel like some obligation to stick with it and. Clearly these people don't. And so maybe they won't again. I and mean, and that would be good news in a sense. You're enjoying the frisson of danger and excitement that
0: has come with your alienation from the party that you were traditionally, that you traditionally aligned yourself with. Um, I, in, since John C. Fremont, I know I've told you this, since John C. Fremont uh, in 1856, all of my lineal ancestors voted for the Republican nominee, except for twice. Uh, my grandfather in 1932 regretted it the rest of his life. He was furious Cock. at himself for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my my dad uh, voted for Ross Perot in '92. So other than that, the Starwaltz had a perfect had a perfect record. I don't know at what age I was when I decided that I didn't care about either of these parties particularly, um, and. Uh, I think maybe it started out of a desire to be better at forecasting and analyzing. I think maybe the the, the the jumping off point was, I can't have attachments because as you say, you and I have done different things in our careers. You have lived a life of the mind and I'm the weatherman. And I like it that way because I want I want to be good at telling you what the weather is going to be like. I like that. Um, and so maybe it started out of a desire to do that. But at whatever point it was like, I don't care. I don't care which, how you people vote. Um, and it feels good. And the reason it feels good, I think you're enjoying it now because, well, I don't think as, uh, you can't really do anything else because as you say, you've got to stick with who you are and you've got to, you've got to say what you believe, uh, and you're going to hold yourself to that. Otherwise I would not admire you as I do if you didn't. Um, but for all those other, look, how would Bill Bennett receive a uh, Republican presidential nominee, Ben Sass? Probably real great. He'd probably... Be, he'd probably be real great with it. Um, he'd probably I, the catastrophizing of politics and the intense negative partisanship that we're experiencing just sets the bar very, very, very low for your own team. And I understand. I really enjoyed your episode with Dan, who shares the name of one of the broadcasters for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, the uh, the I guess the the simplest way I can put it is. If you believe how much you think it will be disastrous for the United States to have the Democrats in power is going to be directly correlated to how willing you are to ignore what's wrong with Republicans, right? Uh, and I, since I have no I, since I don't care, uh, I'm I want to look at both and I just happen to think that the the actions on the right right now, I think right now the interesting story in American politics, is what's going on in the right i wrote about this uh for as Dis- dispatch subscribers already know i wrote about this uh for my monday column uh and the, the point of which being how is it that the people who tell me some of the same people who tell me you can't trust the government on vaccines we have to uh we have to take the maricopa county ballots over to the racetrack and have the <laughs> cyber ninjas look at them how is it that the people who think this stuff that that you know they're 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 asking the My Pillow guy uh, to intercede on the vaccine question. How is it that the, those people who have such low trust in government to do its work are the people who are the other side of their mouth telling me that they can effectively, in JD Vance's case, set NATO policy for uh, American families? Uh, how uh, it can they can regulate speech on the internet uh, and how they can. Uh, remake um, American industrial policy to encourage more women to stay home. I'm like, guys, if you don't think that we can oversee the safe distribution of vaccines, I really don't think this is, uh, this would be a good time to try, uh, a great leap forward, uh, for American manufacturing.
1: Um, apropos of something you just said that I can't remember now. Um, <laughs> that was that good. I, I no, no, no. Um, um, so I, 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 in my Friday monologue ruminant thingamabob, I um talked about this a little bit. I keep hearing um, people, you know, look, I, I, I get the, 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 the deep state paranoia stuff about the, the pandemic, right? I mean, I get the. Oh, there's, you know, like, like there's an internal consistency in having spent as lot, much time as I have following in the fever swamps, having written a book called liberal fascism. I get the, the, the government conspiracy to, uh, to make society legible by forcing vaccination. I, I get those arguments. Um, I'm not saying I agree with them, but the, they, I, I, I get the logic of them. Um, there's a, there's a lesser order one that I've found some conservative pundits are making these days that is kind of brilliantly crafted because it sounds like they're feeding into that for the people who wanna hear that, but they're also saying something that's more pragmatically defensible, which is that the Biden administration is doing a lot of this stuff with masks and mandates and whatnot because it's in their political interest. And it's not for the greater good of America. It's just to get America back into a fear-mongering mode that's good for them for 2022. And for the life of me, I don't know what the hell these people are talking about. I don't need to how name could it, everybody. How could this could is not good, good politics for Biden? Is no, it? I mean it's
0: the worst. What could be worse for Joe Biden than masks? Every mask that reappears is bad news for Democrats in twenty twenty two. Period. And in fact, this the remasking um, is. I'm I'm on vacation traveling. I'm in Tennessee. Uh, Ain't nobody masking nobody in Tennessee. So uh, but in places where that's happening uh, in Washington, D.C., where we both live, uh, where where that's happening, this is being done out of and I hate to use this term, but they're coddling anti-vax people Uh, there. The masks are to protect the unvaccinated. Right. And. I hate I shouldn't say it this way. I I don't mean it to I don't mean it to be cruel, but also bleep them. Right. Like, go get vaccinated, bro. Uh, And I feel like we're losing a little ground on the push to get people vaccinated because the masks, I I think, are are supposed to be a punishment. I think when I listen to Muriel Bowser and other Democratic leaders talk about the masks, it's like because you haven't been good and gotten the vaccine. We're going to have to put these masks back on. People hate that. That's not good politics for them. That doesn't help them.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it just—it just seems to me that, you know, if you're first of all, I—I I, I had to. Uh, sorry for the delay there. I was trying to Google to see whether or not. Uh, Meryl Bowser was related to the Bowser from Sha Nana. Apparently she's not. But um, uh, the idea of your Joe Biden and you had a storyline shaping up of bipartisan infrastructure bill passes GDP at six and a half percent growth pandemic going away in the rearview mirror um, successfully vaccinated Americans like the idea that this crap storm right now is better politics for him. I just, it's, it's, it's a conspiracy theory that's masquerading as, as punditry. And I'm just, I, I find it fascinating that some people are, are making the case, but maybe I shouldn't. Well, isn't, isn't that a cousin
0: to the people who say that the election was rigged? Yeah. Uh, well, what I mean, of course, was that it was rigged because big tech firms uh, and Democratic voting change. So I, I assume that and I, I have not read the argument that somehow it's that the Delta variant is politically good for Joe Biden, but it sounds like it's a cousin to the kind of argument to, and this to to take it back again to your point about how willing you are to be an apologist for one's party. Um there are always going to be writers and pundits who do the thing that you would do with your friend who's really really drunk and your really really drunk friend is like let's go race go karts and you're like you know what's like go karts you know it would be a lot of fun we could go play mario kart on the tv and stay here so the so there there can be there is a lot of that component where people don't want to be against the grain of where they work or what they're doing so they come up with something that's like not exactly what you said, but it has many of the same words in it, and I'm going to stand here next to you and hope that you don't get mad.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. All right, so I had mentioned something else on Morning Joe, and then I just let it lie there like the, the Russian and the Pine Baron. so I want to come back to that. Um, they had, apparently there's a piece in Politico. I have not read it. Um, and unless I, I need the dyspepsia that it would cause, to write something i probably will not read it but there is a apparently there's a piece in politico about the team trying to convince joe biden to be fdr and it's not the team you're thinking of it's not john meacham and those and doris clinton's goodwin and and the history ninjas it's um <laughs> uh um it is at least two members of this group are fdr's grandson Oh, boy. And wait for it, Henry Wallace's grandson. Oh, boy. <laughs> and look, I mean, I, I, this is something I, I don't blame Scarborough for. You don't want to be too rude to these guests who are there like, to... Your grandfather
0: was a useful idiot for Joseph Stalin. Exactly. This is your life.
1: And, uh, you know, and they're there to... But so they're... You can take it anywhere you want. We can just beat up on Henry Wallace, who even FDR grew to despise and dumped him from the ticket. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and wa- so, but Wallace, the, what is, it's, it's Sion is the son, right? So what is, is there a grand Sion? Well, Scion Scion? is the,
0: Scion is the, is the product, is the issue. So he would be, he could be the Scion of the Wallace political dynasty or okay. whatever.
1: Okay. So if there is um, such a thing, so this guy who seems like a very nice guy and I'm sure he runs a really lovely used bookstore somewhere. Um, he, uh, Aww. he was asked what the point of their project is. And he said to get the American people to change their views about how they think about government and that government should just be there to help us in everything. And you know, the usual problem. Um, so you can either just dunk on Henry Wallace if you like, or it seems to me, you know, I've been making this case for a very long time that the new deal, you know, whenever people say, oh, you Republicans, you can't get, re- you can't, you know, forget Ronald Reagan. It's, um, you know. Okay. The FDR cult, the New Deal cult is coming up on a century old now. And the party supposedly of science and new ideas and forward thinking, they can't come up with any other framework other than the New Deal to this day. And what I liked about this um, introduction of the Wallace's and the Roosevelts into the conversation, who are making the exact same BS, con- you know, arguments that people in this cargo cult have been making forever, um, is that it added a nice, a nice soup song of ancestor worship to it. Um, a sort of here's the noble lineage, you know, one of these kids played with a certain bunch of little toys and rattles like the Dalai Lama, and now he, you know. Anyway, it was it was interesting. What is it about the Democratic Party that it cannot come up with a paradigm that um, wasn't created in the 1930s?
0: Well, I, I you know, I revere Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I am, uh, but you don't want his wartime I, government. I was going to say, I'm, I am. I am a. I am a. I am not a West Coast Straussian. Uh, but I'm I'm in the neighborhood, right? I'm I'm hanging out. Uh, so if if Abraham Lincoln is the is the ideal of a president because he balances great characterological and political gifts, right? He is an extraordinary person who also affected extraordinarily good policies. That I I can tell every American political figure: look to Lincoln, look to Lincoln as your North Star. Uh, and emulate him. But that does not mean that I think we need a new Homestead Act. And that doesn't mean that I want to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in Missouri and Maryland, maybe Maryland, make me an offer, maybe. Maybe. But the, the, the challenge, so I think it's great to venerate uh, great leaders of the past. I'm not an FDR guy. I'm not, I, I, I think that the, much of the story of the the 20th century was a a losing battle against progressivism, uh, against Americanism. And I don't think that was, I don't think that was cool. Uh, but I'll put it this way. Democrats want the new deal. I assume that before that they wanted, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson's, uh, wartime, uh, powers and they can't talk about the great society because they don't want to talk about Lyndon Johnson because Lyndon Johnson is such a bad person. Uh, and Roosevelt has the wartime stuff around it. And if the answer is always more government spending more, whatever, I guess, I guess that makes sense to, I guess it makes sense to a certain degree. And I also, I, I hate to say this and you, uh, present company excluded, um, the people who are watching morning Joe, uh, probably they weren't born while, uh, most of them were not born while Roosevelt was still president, but they were born in the generation that was bathed in the warm glow uh, of the revisionist story of the New Deal, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I, we, I don't have to get deep in the weeds on, on New Deal. I, I, don't, I think it's less FDR worship than it is New Deal worship. It is this, because the New Deal, particularly the myth-making of it, of the brain trusts, of the, the smartest people out there being given license to do whatever they think best. The even, Harold cl- yeah, Harold Ickes types who killed those 6 million pigs. Um, I'm sorry, that was Rexford for Tugwell. Um, uh, the, um, they even ran a clip from FDR, which I always find fascinating that people love this about, you know, FDR gave the speech at Oglethorpe university where he talks about bold, persistent uh, experimentation and, they had a clip from him. I guess it was a fireside chat thing saying, hey, look, I don't expect to bat a thousand, but if you, if I can bat like se- successfully seven times out of 10, count me a success. He's talking about like profound violence to constitutional norms about, you know, like some of these things won't work, but I'm going to try and create a code that mandates the price of what you can charge for mending a suit across the entire country. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, you got to break a few eggs. I mean, the, the idea that we should just let the federal government just give it a whirl about whatever it wants to do and see, you know, see what sticks is something that I think just, just as, as you once said about the Giuliani administration in New York about Trumpists, there's something about it that just tickles the erogenous zones of a certain liberal, and um and like the Green New Deal stuff. Every time they come up with a new sweeping reason to spend all the money, it's got to be justified in the idea of a new deal. And I thought we had a new deal, right? I mean, like, what well, you know? Wh- why anyway? I, I could well, fir- well first, first, please uh, inform
0: Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, uh, the governors of Florida and Texas. Uh, and a host of people on the American right today, who are increasingly enthusiastic and frothy about all the things that the government can do to shape our society, the American system of government is rooted in the, the first core belief of the American system: is that human nature is a thing, and people are away. And if people are away, we have to create a system to channel and control for the the man's fallen nature. And it, as Lincoln, to, to stick with Lincoln, uh, I always think of uh, Lincoln's line on slavery where he said, uh, as I would not be a, want to be a slave, I would not want to keep a slave, right? And that sort of the, the American concept about equality requires um, a lot of humility about what government can and cannot do and where power should be and where power shouldn't be. On the left, it makes sense because they don't believe in human nature that way. Um, uh, on the left in America, they think that people is perfectible, and we could go back to the great Yuval Levin book uh, on the great debate between um, uh, Pain, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, and it's the same debate even now. It's more frightening to me on the right uh, because the right is supposed to be. The one, they're supposed to be the ones that stand up for the constitutional order and stand up for the American system. I am very well accustomed to people on the left saying that this is our constitutional system is too slow and it doesn't move uh, in the way that people need. I'm alarmed to hear that fewer and fewer people on the right feel this, that, that, that so many people on the right now feel the same way.
1: Um, not to traffic and personal grievances, but when Rusty Reno, uh, a great defender of the Trump era, um, found it necessary to say that I am the ultimate symbol of Washington decadence. Uh, Really? Oh yeah, it was wonderful. And, uh, and one of my sins was that I criticized the new deal, um, because there is something in that sort of Vermillion post liberal thing about if you believe that government is there to protect the highest good or whatever the Aristotelian line is, then why would you have a problem with the new deal? So long as you could staff it with your people rather than their people.
0: And and as a matter of fact, I have I've had conversations with friends, uh, conservative friends who say, you know, they've really come to admire Roosevelt because he emphasized work and that works projects administration. And why doesn't the government do these things to put people to work? And I'm like, because I don't want the government to do that. I don't want the government to look. I I don't know how the Internet will end up. I don't know how the American family will end up. And I very much agree with Tim Carney, uh, who said that when there are when the law, that the law shapes the culture, just as the culture shapes the law. And that if the law encourages wickedness, that there will be more wickedness. And I, he, uh, that is a hundred percent true. And I absolutely agree with that. On the other hand, neutrality is the correct goal for the government, because I believe in that human beings have a nature and I don't believe that they can be trusted with the kind of authority that would be necessary to make the change. Everybody knows the, uh, Goldwater line. Uh, a government that is big enough to give you everything that you want is powerful enough to take it all away, and I still think that's true. I and I just uh, it's it's vexing to me that that's the memory hole part that really annoys me. And again, they're doing it in real time. That the same people who tell me that I can't trust the vaccine, I can't trust what the CDC says about the vaccine, says that this same government will be able to effectively regulate speech on the internet.
1: No, right and. Um. Yeah. As, as I often put it, like a conservative party by definition has a role to not be the progressive party, and you can't. A car won't go anywhere if it has two brakes, but it also won't kill anybody. A car with two gas pedals and no brakes will kill somebody, and so if both parties become driver. You know, want the want to want to control the gas pedal to drive social engineering and all that kind of stuff. It's just a recipe for friggin' disaster. Um, in part because at some point they're going to agree on what to do with social engineering and, th- and that kind of bipartisanship is scarier than, than partisan animosity. Let's switch topics. I want, I've been thinking about writing about this. Um, we talked about an editorial meeting of actually having a reporter go and call around and just get a bunch of different answers on this. Um, but I want to get your take. So there's this Dobbs digi- decision pending its way, wending its way through our judicial process to, that 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 would um, conceivably lead to the overturning of Roe. Yep. Um, let's put aside whatever your position is on abortion. I don't think I've ever asked you what your position on abortion is. And for our purposes right now, I don't care. This is a pure weatherman question. Okay. Let's start with the court overturns Roe, is that in a purely mercenary, pecuniary, cynical political consultant kind of way, good or bad for the Democrat and Republican parties? Go.
0: Obviously, there will be stark regional differences. There would be stark regional differences, but generally speaking, good for D's politically, bad for R's politically. Uh, Walk me through it. Americans have, uh, not surprisingly contradictory, hold contradictory opinions, uh, within themselves. Uh, and basically America, I'd like to think of America as either a pro-choice nation that hates abortion or a pro-life nation that is secretly pro-choice that, that, that is not comfortable when it comes in. So we've watched my old boss, Ben
1: Wattenberg used to only half jokingly say, if I had to have an abortion bumper sticker, it would, it would read abortion colon. It's murder, and I'm for it. Right.
0: Um, which is not so, to say
1: I agree with his position on that. No, but, no, no, no. But but, but but it does capture a certain amount of the ambivalence that people have that, about it.
0: And and that's that's the old and and we remember that the a lot of the roots of the abortion debate when we go back into the 1960s and when we go to the 1970s and the era when Roe was decided it was a, there were a lot of northeast republicans who were pro choice right there were a, a ton of those folks because it was about population control it was about poverty there was probably an overlay of racism in it too uh so the the point being americans recoil from the extremes in abor- in the abortion debate uh it makes it's much like Euthanize. It's a host of topics that are tricky and icky, and folks recoil from extreme positions. the The mainstream position on abortion in America, if you were to describe what is the the in of the circles, which one is the largest in the Venn diagram? The largest single circle is going to be people who are pro choice, but with a, a ban on abortions in at least the final trimester. Uh, if not, you could probably get to a plurality support for banning all elective abortions after the first trimester and uh, with the exception for yeah. Yeah, the life of the mother. So that's probably the Mitt Romney probably reflected the plurality position on abortion in the United States. Um, but if you take down Roe, if the court takes down Roe, this will kick off a bunch of scaremongering Right, so the the Republicans will say we won. We got Donald Trump elected. We shifted the Supreme Court. We got Amy Coney Barrett on there, and we we dumped Roe versus Wade. This will cause a lot of women in the suburbs, a lot of men and women, but people who remember these fights from the '70s and '80s, older voters, uh, people our age and older, who will freak. Right? <laughs> they will say, "Wait, they overturned Roe," and that will be bad news for Republican Senate candidates and Republicans down ballot in twenty twenty two.
1: And as a, f- it seems to me as a fundraising issue right? I mean the old, the old rule was, and I think it's still true that in cult- that in, generally speaking, culture war fights help Republicans with voters and Democrats with donors. Right. I mean, that's basically true. Um, just look at guns, abortion. I mean, I'm trying to think of one where that's not gay marriage. Um, uh, it seems to me if you got rid of, uh, and I'll just be clear, you don't have to answer this, but like, I think Roe is terrible law. I, I, totally I think agree. it's poorly decided. Um, you can be pro-choice, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, and still believe that Roe was badly decided. Um, so I think it should be overturned. And I, I don't know that the Dobbs case is the one that should do it or not. That's I haven't done my homework enough on that. Though it sounds like maybe it is. Um, that said, if it got overturned by the Supreme Court, you could see how for the first time, abortion is a good issue for voters and for donors for the Democratic Party, right?
0: Yeah. And again, so if that happens, here are some obvious first consequences. Uh, Primaries around the country immediately get redefined as who can take on the Republican side, who can take a maximalist position on abortion, right? So, uh, you're, you're the Ohio, the already terrible Ohio Republican Senate primary turns into, you know, JD Vance, uh, promising to swing from the yard arm, uh, any doctor who performs an abortion, who, who could have the most extreme position on the thing on the Democratic side, probably much of the Probably much of the same in the sense of who can be the most staunch in the the maximalist position that they're going to take on the other side. So I think that would, I think dumber primaries would immediately be a consequence. Uh, And then you'd have state legislatures would be consumed by this for quite a while because you're not going to be able to talk about a lot else when the, and I think it's probably 30% or so of Americans fairly evenly split. Uh, who are extremely, who care about this, an enormous lot. Uh, And I think it would be, it would really remake a lot of our political uh, landscaping uh, on the state level too as those fights went through state houses.
1: Yeah, so that's part of David's argument. And I I think I might agree with him in the long term about why the court could convince itself it's in the country's interest to overturn Roe because at some point you got to cut the Gordian knot and if you send this issue back down, again, this is a Ruth Bader Ginsburg argument, but you, know, you send this issue back down to the state and local level, it could just be that Americans figure out the compromise position that they want. And it would not please every pro-lifer, and it certainly would not please every pro-choicer. And in some places, it would be very bad one way, and in other places, it might be very good another way. I mean, it just would vary. But it would stop making it a federal issue, and the fewer things we have that are federal issues, the better it is for polarization and culture wars and all the rest. We we can argue about how how much
0: too early the Supreme Court was uh, on uh, the gay marriage case. Um, why am I drawing a blank on his name? O- Obergefell. We can argue how 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 early were they? But if you compare what happened. On the gay marriage debate, if you look at that, it had worked through the states for a long enough time. There had been enough plebiscites, there had been enough stuff, right? And it had gone this way, and it had gone that way, and there had been a robust debate that had taken place on the state level for a long time. And then the court came in and sort of fell on the ball uh, with Obergefell. Now, of course, there were different standards that related there to interstate, the interstate compact, right? Uh, and it, how can I be married in uh, how can I be married in Nevada but not in Nebraska? Uh, so there was that other component, but I think it points us to a way that we would be a, I think it would be a, a relatively short, but very intense national debate about what abortion laws should be like. And frankly, that's probably a good thing. It's probably a good thing to air this out. It's probably a good thing to talk about this stuff instead of doing what we're doing now, which is trying to people trying to game the system, uh, and find ways to get around a bad decision.
1: Um, I mean, I've said this on here before, but uh, when you talk to Europeans and Europeans are like, why are you Americans so crazy about abortion? Um, You know, it's, it's tearing your country apart. And you then explain what Roe and Doe and upheld by Casey, whatever, actually allow for under the constitution. And they're like, oh my God, that's barbaric. And because if you actually go to most European countries, most Latin American countries, they're view their regulations on abortion are sort of like what you were describing what the american compromise would be which is pretty much legal the first trimester into the second trimester and then the the prohibitions start kicking in pretty severely and you know and by the time it looks like it can wave at you in those ultrasound pictures it's pretty hard and rightly so to, to get an yeah. abortion you know um and uh the and this is why, I mean, as, as a metaphysical thing, I just have a much diff- more difficult time defending the pro-life position at one minute after conception than I do at one minute before birth. And yeah, yeah, that doesn't yeah, mean yeah. you can't, conf- doesn't mean you can't defend the one minute after conception thing, but there you have to rely a lot on, 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 to be honest, on science, first of all, but also on faith and, and, and logic and that kind of stuff. And on the one minute before birth thing, it's. It's a freaking baby, you know. Like, look, it's a baby, um, and I think that's where a lot of Americans are who don't want to get all theological and philosophical about this, and they don't want to hear about it anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I think, in the long run, overturning it if they do it for the do it the right way, you know, would be forget the the strict pro life issue. It would be a net good for our politics in the long run. In the short run, it would be a hot mess.
0: Uh, nationalism is wrong for the united states because the nation is the wrong political is the wrong political unit in which for the united states of america to sort out its policy basis the nation may be the right political unit for france you know that may be right france may be the right size spain may be the right size to do that that the nation itself is the correct political unit. In the United States, the nation is the wrong political unit, thank God, because we are huge and incredibly diverse. America, you know, we talk about diversity in America when we're trying to make uh, everything look like a Benetton ad. And uh, I'm sure that the goals are laudable. The real diversity in America is geographical. The real diversity in America is that the parts of the country, we're like seven or eight countries in one unit. And coming up with policies that will be pleasing to the individuals in all of those places is not going to happen. So, na- so na- nationalism is bad for America because the nation is not the primary political subunit, is not the primary political unit, uh, under which our system is supposed to work.
1: Um, I will point out that Jean-Jacques Rousseau, widely credited to be the creator of the concept of essentially civic nationalism, um, and had all sorts of totalitarian evilness bound up in concept of the general will and the social contract and all that kind of stuff. But even he said this crap won't work in any polity larger than the city of, of Geneva. Um, because just the scale problem, you can't do it. And that was one of the things that the founding fathers understood with the whole Madisonian structure of things. All right, we're going to go to a quick potpourri. Um, your theology is, I'm sorry, your grasp of theology is better than mine. Um, I was about to say your theology is better than mine, and that would just start a whole other thing. <laughs> um uh I asked this on Twitter. I haven't seen the answers. I literally jumped on this podcast right before right after I asked this. But I don't know if you saw it. There was a sign up and some guy a protester translating the letters in Pfizer to r- work out the number six six six. Oh boy. And um uh and it turns out that I think maybe the protester was in Italy or something and like the numbers actually work for the Italian alphabet. That doesn't matter. My point is, you know how this happens? Like every, depending on how close attention you pay every five seconds to five months, there's some story about how if you play with the anagram, it spells Satan. Or if you play with the numbers, it leads the 666, the sign of the beast. I remember in high school, it was a big deal for a little while. The old Proctor, I think it was Procter and Gamble symbol on the back of your toothpaste if you drew circles around the stars the right way it formed a pentagram kind of thing so um given your i believe lutheran upbringing, no 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 Uh,
0: Um, i'm a i'm a i'm a a presbyterian who identifies as an anglican
1: okay Uh, and for, for for there are right now there are among my listeners people either Spitting out their coffee or laughing uproariously, and I'm just that just that just sailed way above my head. But uh is there something in scripture or in theology that suggests Satan would be this dumb that he would put the Easter egg, you know, you put the, he would tip his, he would tip his cards, he would show his cards by making the like we are just about to. Uh, launched a thousand years of darkness and rule um, with Rosemary's baby um, here on earth. But these damn kids in their dream machine van um, and their Scooby snacks, they figured (laughs) out that if you connect the stars in the back of the toothpaste, it shows a pentagram and now they're on to us. Why would the, why would the devil tip his hat?
0: Well, the, I don't know what it was like in New York, but I can tell you that in uh, West Virginia and the time we lived in St. Louis uh, in the 1980s, uh, the fear of Satanism was there, right? It was like the urban urban legend. There were satanic cults everywhere and they were doing all of this stuff. So I guess the thinking wouldn't be that Satan is doing it, but that his disciples, I assume Gene Simmons and the other members of KISS, uh, that, that the disciples of Satan are communicating with each other their codes to let you know hail hydra uh yes, yes, yes. To, to to let one another uh no the 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 bad the really bad thing about satan is in fact that he does not give you any warning signs in advance he's like you know what you ought to do you ought to lie cheat and steal you deserve it that's how he works <laughs> He doesn't, he doesn't go on the, he doesn't show up with devil horns and a pitchfork and say, on the back of the toothpaste, by by the power of the toothpaste, we shall rule the world. He insidiously gets into the nooks and crannies and invites you, uh, you, I know you've read the screw tape letters. Uh, that's, that's the game, uh, not, uh, hail Hydra.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the problem bothers me so much when people talk about, oh, it's a Faustian bargain. Why would you take that? Faustian bargains are really attractive why that's why people make them you know it's 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 not you know you're gonna have to churn butter for the rest of your life it's you'll get every you'll get all your heart's desires that's the Faustian bargain you know um or you'll get to be you know the the attorney general of Wales. um <laughs> which you know, a shocking number of people in the Republican party desperately want to be um all right, so on to a, a, a actually one thing since. You brought up, you lived in St. Louis, and I've had plenty of guests. I think I asked this of Lyman Stone once, but can you, you don't have to explain the theological roots of it, but like, I remember being first introduced to this on Cheers, where uh, Woody is talking about the members of the Missouri Lutheran Synod being essentially the Hatfields to the Missouri Lutheran Sinna. I mean, it was like almost, it was people's front of Judea versus Judea's front of. Uh, was, of right, right, whatever. Right. I can't remember the exact terminology, but since then, people have told me it's a real thing. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. So, I, so what, I, what was the I, issue? I, there? I, I very it co- lovingly. Co- it wasn't refer. cousin marriage, like with Springfield versus Shebbyville or anything. No. It, uh,
0: I, I very, very lovingly refer to the many, many Missouri Synod Lutherans who I admire uh, and adore. Uh, I refer to them as Shia Lutherans. Uh, and, uh, so let, us maybe think about it in a, in a, in a universal sense for mainstream, uh, Protestant denominations, uh, in the 1950s starting, but sixties, seventies and into the 1980s, there was a whole lot of schisming, uh, and there were a whole lot of changes. So like inside the Presbyterian church, which is my, I am ethnically Presbyterian, uh, the inside the presbyterian church you have the presbyterian church of america and you have the presbyterian church usa one is more southern uh and more traditional one is more northern and more liberal uh and you have those those splits work their way through a bunch of denominations in the lutheran church their synods are were geographical understandably like most churches All of the churches over here uh, are in this state or under the control of this bishop. I don't know. when. I think they have bishops. I don't know. But under under the control, they were state by state. So during their fight, uh, there was a breakaway and Missouri became a non-geographical synod and said, anybody who agrees with us and wants to get out of the main Lutheran, it's the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Anybody who wants out can come to our new Missouri is everywhere. Right. So the Missouri Synod refers, and there's also the Wisconsin Synod, which is like the double Shia. They're like, they're, they're, they're here for it. So these non-geographical synods have geographical names, which make them confusing. But basically these were, these were breakaways.
1: That's very helpful. So it's sort of like in Gladiator where Rome isn't just a city, it's an idea. Missouri. Exactly. I gotcha. Okay, that's very helpful. And there you and, go. and, 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 and pleased all the listeners who are deeply invested in all this stuff. I'm just trying to have a little light potpourri reaction here. And I don't mean to belittle serious <laughs> issues whatsoever. And that goes, especially for my last question. Um, I set off a hornet's nest on, um, on Twitter the other day because, and I will defend it. And I believe it passionately. I prefer cold fried chicken to hot fried chicken.
0: You know what, Jonah, somebody even sent me your tweet Because I, so I'm going to, I'm going to make it, uh, unsurprisingly, I as a fat American will make it a more, even, even more nuanced and complicated discussion. Uh My favorite fried chicken is picnic chicken, which is cold or room temperature and had the next day and it doesn't have a thick, crunchy. So I think most people have had Popeye's fried chicken,
1: which is heavily breaded. And
0: it should only, and it should only be eaten hot. Yes. Right. Uh, Once that gets cold and the breading, you would, you'd have to take extraordinary measures to revive the chicken and warm it up in a way that would make it satisfying to eat. Leftover cold, thickly breaded, what we call like people would call Southern style fried chicken. No good. But Kentucky fried chicken. And I just, on this trip have passed through the birthplace of Kentucky fried chicken. Uh, Way to go Corbin, Kentucky. Um, but the, the less breaded, the flour dredged variety of fried chicken is better cold and is better the next day. I stand with Jonah.
1: Excellent. Okay. This is, this is what I wanted to hear. I mean, and again, this isn't one of these things where like, you know, there's no just such thing as, you know, there's, there's no difference between good flan and bad flan because they're both bad. Right. I, I actually really like hot fried chicken, good hot fried chicken. Of course. But there is something so, I mean, and maybe it's because of my mom, who made wonderful fried chicken, my mom, who will tell you is a Southerner, and um, is being, oh, you'll like this, you know the, what's her name? um Mar- I'm forgetting her name. The lady who won an Emmy for playing the Moonshine mom boss in Justified, um, uh, Marjorie Marigold, something. Anyway, she's playing my mom in the FX true crime no saga about the clinton um impeachment stuff how, how does um, your mom feel about this is this i think she thinks it's funny and and i looked it up today because there there was the thing they released the first poster for the thing i think she's only in one episode um which you know we'll, we'll see how it does i think it's a little unfair to her given how old the actress is who's a fantastic actress yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um she was also in the american's as the handler. Um, oh, I know exactly the one who you mean. She was in Sneaky Pete, too. Um, I'll take you your word on that one. Um, she's a,
0: she's a, she's a, uh, a, a robust uh, woman. She's yeah. a, like a, a strong... She has a bulldog-like appearance.
1: And I think it's a little unfair to my mom in terms of yeah appearance stuff. But whatever, you know, it's fine. But also, your mom is a
0: very elegant person. She's not a roughneck.
1: That is, I think that is fair. And, um, and she has much... Much better handwriting than Madison Cawthorn. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> um, uh, it's true. My entire family were in awe of my, my mom's handwriting because she took handwriting in school. My mother, my mother
0: too. She, my, my mom had perfect Perker penmanship. Every little loop, little loop, loop, loop. And this would be even on just a thing that was written to leave on the refrigerator. The penmanship was always perfect.
1: Yeah. And meanwhile, my penmanship is okay. I've inherited my dad's block letters. And... But like, sometimes I look at my daughters or some of the kids who work at AI and whatnot, and it looks like in the with only a few pings left on the heart monitor, they were trying to scratch out their living will. <laughs> um, and, well, one uh, thing
0: I will say that the Shia Lutherans at their schools, uh, good handwriting is still taught, and uh, that's a good thing. I, I I think kids should know how to write and communicate that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I use it as an excuse for why I don't write more thank you cards. It's because I'm too embarrassed about my pen, penmanship. But
0: I just say I'm lazy and people believe it because it's true.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of my yearbook quotes uh, was, they say I'm lazy, but it takes all my time. Um, there you go. And you, you, I, I'll leave it to listeners to find out what song that's from. All right. So uh, this is this is descended into what my dad would call nanotalk, um, which is several orders of magnitude smaller than small talk. Uh, Can I ask one favor? Can I yes. ask one
0: favor before you excuse me though? If anybody has uh, recommendations uh, about what to do about barbecue in Memphis, I'm going to be in Memphis on Thursday. So uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram at C. So if anybody wants to find me uh, there, uh, any, uh, any barbecue wrecks, I'm thinking rendezvous, but uh, I'm open. So the universe come to me.
1: I've spent a good deal of time in in Memphis and in Tennessee in general. I will send you my own off air, but um, you have kids with you? No kids with you?
0: Yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The boys. Are you going to go to the Peabody? We're going to go to the Peabody, but we're getting in late. Memphis is the layover. Uh, We're in East Tennessee, and we're going to St. Louis for a, a Cardinals game. So Memphis is the is the stopover for a little Graceland and probably one good barbecue dinner. We may go out to commissary. I don't know.
1: My um. When I was, when I was wooing the fair Jessica, she lived in Nashville for a while because she was working for Lamar Alexander and the less said about all that, the better. And, um, <laughs> although it's amazing that bomb, uh, that went off on Christmas day last year, like was literally outside the apartment that she lived in. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, anyway, uh, where was I going with this? Um, we went to Memphis a bit, and, but she did not, she, as, as you may know, cause you were one who does this as well. We are people who collect obscure facts that we find interesting and then we bring them up at, at times and people think you must be making them up. And in fact, no, it's, it's true. Um, and I had told my wife, oh yeah, there's this hotel in Memphis. We should check it out every day around, uh, at happy hour, um, or thereabouts. They have a parade of ducks that come in and swim in the fountain. And she did not believe me. And we went and we saw the Peabody ducks and I've been lording it over her ever since. Um, take, take the wins where you can get them. Exactly. So, uh, if you get a chance to see it, it's really pretty cool. Um, and have you never been to Graceland?
0: I have been to Graceland, but, uh, uh my children have not. Uh, and we're, Memphis is a cool city and it's, you know, where the, the, mid, the mid South is, is cool. And we're sort of doing some family, not, we're, we're sort of following some family roots uh, and we're—it's like Kevin Williamson's voyage. What did he call it? Big White Ghetto. Uh, his his trip through Appalachia. We're taking it, but we're like on the sunny side.
1: We're having- <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 here for it. We like
1: it. So I, I I think my take on Graceland is it's great to see. Been there a couple times. It is very much like an American Versailles, in that you realize that the definition of being crazy wealthy uh, changes over time and like the orange kitchen formica which uh they I believe they have in the kitchen in Graceland and the three big cathode ray television sets were at the time the pinnacle of of extravagant self-indulgent wealth and now they feel like scaled up middle class americana you know and it's sort of a fascinating Thing to see. All right, we are truly dragging this out now. And, you know, th- there are people who need to get out of their car. They've been parked in their driveway for 10 minutes listening to this, hoping that finally this podcast would be worth listening to. And I have to disabuse them of it because we are done. So, Christopher Steywalt, thank you so much for being on. And um, obviously, you'll be back again one way or the other. Okay. So, uh, Brother Steywalt has left the building, as it were. And um, I. Sorry if the, the scattershot nature of particularly the end of this podcast, um, gave some people whiplash and I apologize if I was too glib about one thing or their other thing. It's just, you know, I just didn't want to let the guy go because I enjoy talking to him and, um, stay tuned. I, again, I don't want to jinx it by telling people who it is, but, uh, one of the most exciting guests ever to grace this podcast will be on later this week. And I'm very excited about it and I may in fact write an introduction which is something I have not done for a single guest in over I don't know 150 something episodes of the remnant it's that it's it's that exciting so I don't want to get your expectations up too high but if you miss this podcast um you might as well um give up on podcasts entirely so uh with that uh, please become a paid member of the dispatch community. Uh, please sign up for everything that we've got or everything that interests you that we've got. I know it's the dog days of summer. Um, and, uh, people are a little tuned out on the news and all the rest. Um, but we are plotting a very ambitious fall with all sorts of exciting things. And if you're, um, sympathetic to interested in, or, um, engaged with the stuff that we do on the remnant advisory opinions the dispatch pod the g file uh the sweep french press whatever um and you're not a paid member please do it it would be great for us we think it would be good for you we promise not to waste your time and um and 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 great things lie ahead and with that i'll see you next time
0: no you won't this is a podcast
1: Say no, you want this as a podcast and you're free.
0: I will. I'm trying to think how I'm going to play it.
1: <laughs> it's such a complicated line.
0: Well, you got to, you know, you got to mix it up. You got to, you got to mix it up. Um, I'll do, all right. Tell me when you're ready. Now, go for it. Three, two, one.